0: Hello, everyone. My name is Ian Rowe. And I'm Nike Fajors. And welcome to The Invisible Men, where we make the achievements of incredible men invisible no more. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of The Invisible Men. My name is Ian Rowe, resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute.
1: Hello, I'm Nike Fajors, a member of the Leadership Network at AEI.
0: Hey, Nike, good to see you. All right. Well, our viewers know we love to showcase uh, some incredible Black men who are just doing some pretty special work that some of us may not know about or not uh, not enough of us know about. And today, we have the incomparable Roland Fryer. Hello, Roland. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, man. So good to see you. So you are... Not only a professor at of economics at Harvard, you are at Harvard University, you are the youngest tenured black professor in the history of Harvard University at age 30.
2: That's sad. Is, sad, isn't it?
0: <laughs> look, that is amazing. That is yeah. that that is amazing. Congratulations, congratulations. Yeah, so before we even get to all that, how you were able to do that at age 30 and some of the research you've done, we'd love to just hear a little bit about you, young Roland, uh, before you even knew what the word tenure meant. Um, Just, yeah, were there any experiences you growing up that had a particular impact on how you thought about the world, especially around issues of race?
2: Oh man, I don't know how much time you got. I'll, I'll, give you the, I'll give you the headline and then you can decide if you want to dig in. Um, I was raised partially by my grandmother um, who uh, lived in Daytona Beach, Florida. I was born in Daytona Beach and just lived the vast majority of my life, all of my life as a kid in the South. And so the South has a different way of thinking about race and race is just a different object uh, in the South than it is uh, up North. And so I grew up on the one hand of my grandmother telling me these amazing stories of, you know, um, going to work and being spit on, etc. In 1969, she integrated white schools. She was a uh, sixth grade uh, English teacher and apparently one of the best around, according to her. And so <laughs> they, they didn't have value add back then, I guess. Right. And, right. Um, as when the when the uh, schools were integrated, they asked her to go and work in white schools and so she went from her neighborhood in daytona beach florida over to port orange which is a much more fluent area and taught there so she had many many stories and listened to that on the other hand i uh, spent another portion of my childhood in right outside of dallas texas in a small town outside of dallas and there race was really palpable but but um in a different way it was very matter of fact Okay, so there were some parts of it that were bad. You know, there were notes left in my cubby as an elementary school kid that I didn't love. There were other parts of it that, again, I don't know how to describe. It was like um, almost like food preferences are among the elite, right? You, you have someone over for dinner and they send you an email I don't like cauliflower. I don't eat this. I've got a nut allergy, things like that. Uh, that would be uh, considered rude in the South to do something like that. You know? But here it's commonplace. Down there, we'd be playing outside basketball, football, what have you. And we'd want to break for snacks and we'd say, We're gonna to go to Bobby's house. Okay. And Bobby would just look at you and say, Dude, we don't let black people in our house. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Well we'll go somewhere else. Like it was like so <laughs> of fact. And, and wow. of the truth of it is sometimes people, Bobby would say, Well I got sour past kids. They're like, peace roll. was <laughs> a real it was you know, <laughs> awesome benefits. It was amazing, but it was so matter of fact. There was no it was almost emotionless in that sense. It was very um different uh and so i grew up with race all around me in that way but on the other hand i played sports from five years old all the way through college and so there was this interracial mixing on sports teams and 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 team camaraderie and so on the one hand um part of my environment was telling me be careful of every white person you met on the other part of my environment you know uh a a white teacher is the one who stayed after school to make sure I could learn how to read. And so that's the kind of,
0: that's the duality,
2: um, duality that I grew up in. And many of us grew up in, I'm not unique. Let me, let me be clear about that. But, and so race was always this interesting struggle for me because as you can imagine, as I aged and I'll shut up as I aged, like interracial dating was weird right in the South. That was very strange and how you navigated that. Um, And so um, I would say that I grew, go ahead.
0: So, but, but you know, as you say, it's sort of so, so matter of fact. But do you remember how it made you feel when Bobby said, well, you know, like, we're cool, we're friends, but I can't have you come to my house? Like, did was it did it did it? How did that touch you?
2: Perhaps I'm strange, but there was a level of compartmentalization with those things that it just didn't. Um, looking back, I felt like. That was on Bobby's parents, not on Bobby. Right. And so wow. it was just a level of compartmentalization.
0: Wow. That's because
2: deep. I never thought Bobby doesn't want me in the house. I always thought Bobby's parents did. Right. And so, uh, again, maybe it's too much compartmentalization. I don't know. That That's that's, that's too deep for me. But, but I can remember back then just we were friends. But, you know, we got over stuff quickly. We, we compartmentalized. We would get in fights, you know, playing football and getting too rough with each other. And then, you know, you go over to his house for dinner. <laughs> it just, it didn't, there was a level of just letting things yep. slide off that, that, that was um, a part of my childhood. So I want to just add to that one thing, which is halfway important. Yes. Race was all around us, but I don't ever remember anyone being debilitated by it. You, you know what I'm saying? Like no one, no one used that as a, as a, brought it up at the forefront of their thinking for why they couldn't do something or what, or what, what was influencing closing their thinking? It just was, it was a matter of fact kind of thing.
0: Wow. Well, that's pretty powerful. Cause right now in the current context, race is, it, it has been portrayed as the omnipresent, um, barrier that a lot of folks can't, can't, uh, and we're going to come to that. So, yeah, so tell sure. us a little bit more about your journey. Um, So you were a big sports player. Cool. And then how did you end up on the pathway to becoming uh, this status at at Harvard? Pure
2: luck. I don't know. Um, I, um, uh, school was not my thing. I never studied in school. Um, I just, it was more social to me than academic. Um, I did enough to ensure that You know, my grandmother uh, was okay with it, but that usually was B's and C's. I just didn't, you know, I never really applied myself in school. I'm not proud of it, but I just didn't. It's the truth. Um, And when I got to college, um, I had a professor who really just turned the light switch on for me. Uh, There were two of them. One was in statistics and one was in economics. And, you know, when I walked into sociology class, it's like, it was, you know, everything depends on everything else. And, and you know, they had these big words I didn't understand. And I looked around and everyone was nodding and I was completely confused. When I walked into my first economics class, um, we the, the lecture was about halfway through. I looked around and everyone looked confused and I'd never had more clarity
0: in my life. <laughs>
2: really, like it made total sense to me, right? So oh. the, the, the sociology class was, everything depends on everything else. And so it's, it, you can't really know the cause of anything. And the economics department was, you know, uh, people are self-interested jerks and they maximize their own utility. And I was like, not that I clearly <laughs> understand. Right. And so
0: that, that's a way to predict. <laughs> They're linear relationships. Right.
2: Very clear. Right. And so I would meet him classes at eight. And now that I'm a professor, I know what he was doing. But back then he had office hours at 7am. And I was there every day every, you know, monday wednesday friday i was there monday and wednesday 7 a.m wow you know how do you think about this government policy how do you think about that um you know what are the incentive you know components of a welfare system like that stuff turned me on from i was what age 18 18 19 i, I never thought like that no one ever taught like that and so it was a way to use linear logic as you said ian to questions that i thought were really relevant to um, all the arguments I had with my grandmother, right? My grandmother and I used to argue all the time in the most spirited way. And, you know, she would tell me, you keep living. You gotta, you gotta, you, you gotta, you going to understand what I'm telling you now. And I would say, grandma, do all old people agree, right? And she would, <laughs> so we had spirited arguments about race, right? Because um, for her, many interactions in a day-to-day basis were considered to be racism. For me, I thought, well, is there another explanation for that? And as I've gotten older, I get it. She was coming to those interactions with a very different lens. I didn't um, uh, uh, integrate school, right? I wasn't spit on right. in that way. And so even a Bayesian actor, someone who's rational with that as the backdrop might interpret unclear signals in a different way than I might. So I get it, right? But It just, again, made for a, let's call it frothy environment where race, economic statistics were all, were all, you know, applied to things that I've been arguing with my family about forever, right? Like my statistics professor got me thinking, when is it rational to pay the lottery? What does the, what does the pot have to be where the expected value is greater than a dollar for the ticket? Right. And so I would, I'd run home to my uncle. I told you, you shouldn't be playing the ladder. <laughs> <laughs> Literally something that I applied right away. Whereas frankly, some of the, the arts, the Western philosophy, the, you know, reading about, um, uh, uh Socrates and Plato and it, that, that didn't, that just didn't do it for me.
1: And Roland, my understanding is that you originally were going to college to spend a lot of time playing sports yeah yeah but in fact you pushed all that to the side as well when you found your your calling as it were is that is that correct
2: yeah i mean comparative advantage i um
1: (laughs) i i saw that
2: people were really good at that and i was able to say look um in five years this is going to be a hobby so i remember the exact thought in five years this is going to be a hobby why not make it a hobby now what am i going to glean over the next five years um and i had been you know uh i was born in 1977 uh my birthday is june 4th 1977 so i forged my birth certificate so that i could work at mcdonald's at 13 by taking the handwritten four and figuring out how to get it over on the seven so it looked like june 4th 1974. so at 13 i was working full-time at mcdonald's i was whatever in eighth grade and i had worked full-time before that at 12 i was reupholstering furniture um uh, and that was my first job, and then it was McDonald's. I, I always wanted money in my pocket and didn't have any, so a job was the only way to do it. And so I, um, I, um, the point of that is I've been working full-time all the way up through high school. In high school, I was in voc right? So a lot of people don't know that listen, before there was the economics nerd, the big data nerd rolling, and it was the brother who thought he was going to be delivering fades up in cosmetology, right? I was in in ed, okay? <laughs> full-time job from, uh, 12 onwards and so the point of that is when I got to college and could focus on actual just studying and didn't have to work full-time I was like this thing is easy do you mean like that's all I have to do <laughs> right and I didn't have some drama at home around me and so for me college was like wow like you add that to the interesting set of questions and that's the reason I got a PhD. I mean, this is the funnest thing ever. Like, I, why would I want to stop this? <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, I know what work is like, right? But this is great. And so for me, um, it wasn't like I had, you know, any teachers in middle school that, oh, you're that smart. I mean, I was in um, special ed in middle school uh, because of my behavior, right? I mean, all I wanted to do was tell your mom a joke. All I was good at, and that's all I wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> and if we got time at the end, I'll show you off some fields. But anyway. No, okay, I, okay,
0: okay. All right, you got you to tell us what You got to tell us one. At
2: any rate, so for me, college was a place where it all turned on because the classes were interesting. I could choose them, and just my mental space was freed up from being away from that home environment and having the time, not having to work with
0: Got it. And how would you... Ian, I just want to make
1: one observation for the audience, especially the young people. So... What you heard the brother say is, you know, I moved away from sports because I made an economic decision that studying was going to get me farther. I just want to make the point that I don't know however many years later, he was awarded a MacArthur uh, Award, which comes with, you know, you can look it up, a half a million dollars, $600,000 basically free grant to do whatever you want with. So young people, you know, his economic mind led him down a path that actually, even based on the economics, the dollars and cents was actually prudent and appropriate.
0: Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. So. no, it happened, Okay. Right. Sorry. He said, it. I got
2: <laughs> one thing. I first got the Harvard people coming to me and said, could you come check out my kid? I heard you you're pretty good at sports. I, I want you to check out my kid. He got a high school football game on Friday. And I said the same thing every time. Do they get tackled? What do you mean do they get tackled? Easy question. Do they get tackled? Of course they get tackled. But he ran for 80 yards. <laughs> Tell him to focus on school. It's just <laughs> <accepted>. like, <laughs> you, you, you have to understand how good you have to be, right? Like mm-hmm. I, Ian, you'll appreciate this. I brought a, a bunch of kids from PS399 um, uh, in, in uh, uh, Bedford-Stuyves, okay. New York, up to Harvard as a class trip. Okay, yep. So we're sitting in, in the middle of Harvard Square. I am an assistant professor. I tell the toughest seven, seventh grader, why don't we do a foot race to John Harvard? If the old professor beats you, you focus on school. Whoa.
0: And of course, they were like, okay? bet.
2: <laughs> he, he was like, bet. I'm going to dust you off. Right? And, I said, and if I, he said, what if I win? I said, if you win. A Harvard professor will come in a pink dress to your school. Okay. Now I didn't beat him as as much as I should have, but I did, did get him. <laughs> I got <a> little nervous. <laughs> Forty yards in, <laughs> but that you know that's my point, and I just wanted to, to 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 add on that sports is awesome. It taught me so much grit and resilience and toughness, and I like I. I, I it, I wouldn't trade it for the world but if it comes to making decisions about how much human capital that is how much education how much studying you're doing it's an easy choice for for the vast majority of people it's an easy choice
0: yeah no no when when i when i was in high school i was a good baseball player i mean i was you know we we i had dreams of grandeur but when i got to cornell (laughs) my parents shut that down you're like, <laughs> no. you like no and honestly they were like no their attitude was we've seen too many black boys get so enamored by this dream of becoming the next you know name the athlete and they were just they just shut it down they just shut it down but yeah and i'm honestly, not trying to I, kill I, anyone's I appreciate... dream what's I'm not
2: that to, if, i'm not trying to kill anyone's dreams if you're not getting tackled Do your thing, but if you're struggling to get 100 yards in high school, come on, join me with the nerds, baby. (laughs) There you
0: go, there you go. All right, so Roland, so Roland, so now this is all good. So tell us just a little, just give us an overview because I want to get into some policing stuff. I want to get into your new thing, reconstruction. What's your what's what's your overall ethos in terms of what drives your interest in research? Because you've done some great stuff in, in I run charter schools, I know you've got some great stuff there, policing, but what ties it all together in terms of what you're trying to uh, uncover for all of us to understand?
2: You know, when I first took my steps on Harvard, even before that, I fundamentally believed that the issue, one of the big issues confronting Black people in the United States was we just didn't have the data, we didn't have the evidence. Of what specific things we could do to make things better, and so, you know, my grandmother again would would talk to every day uh, until she passed away, and I would tell her what I was working on. She's like, "I told you that back in nineteen 19- whatever." <laughs> yes, yes, Grandma, but ain't nobody listening to you because you don't have you don't have nice you don't have good data visualization. Okay, and so we would joke about that all the time, but I really did believe that that if I just had the right data on the right question that the arc of history was gonna to bend towards truth. And so it was really just all about not having the appropriate data, okay? Um, and for a long period, I was able to believe that because a lot of the stuff I did just didn't work. And so I just thought, hmm, that didn't work, that didn't work. Um, but as I started to uh, mature uh, as a professor and to have, have the luck of getting things that did work, the lack of adoption, in the public sector um, really uh, uh, troubles me. And so the reason I did research was because I wanted a fact base. I really believed that, and still believe, that if you look at the data carefully and you actually use science to help understand and, 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 and fix the, the issues with being Black in America, that that is the best way forward that this is not a game, you know, I know this will sound naive, but this is my point of view, like, some people play this as politics and power. And and I get that I'm not naive enough to understand that that's that's not important. But I really thought that having the facts ranked was really uh, uh, key. And so I set out on a on an absolute personal mission of 80 hours a week for two decades to do that, to have proof that was above reproach, to tackle issues like police, like education, like health, like the crack epidemic, uh, and to use, to do what inspired me when I walked into that first economics class, which is to use the best possible tools to approach the heart of social problems, right? It didn't make any sense to me in graduate school, Ian, that the toughest and the best minds were working on problems like the optimal cake-eating problem,
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Whereas things about race, inequality, gender, those we left up to you know Hannity and Combs at the time to debate,
0: without right. data, without data, without
2: data, right? right? And so that drove me nuts, okay? And I wanted to to do something about that, and so that's what we did. We, we you know, we 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 went after that problem, and um, I don't know how much progress we've made. Not enough for my for my taste, but yep. um, that was the that was the goal.
1: So my brother we're gonna we're gonna pivot to our what we call our speed round uh which we okay. do with all of our guests on the invisible men podcast and i'm gonna give you a, a couple of names or maybe a couple of philosophies and ask you to pick one and tell us why so we'll start with malcolm or martin oh man
2: i'm i'm a malcolm guy <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, uh yeah, it's just that by any means necessary. I, I mean it in terms of data but, but uh, and, and my methods, but just very inspiring to me. Civil
1: rights or economic development?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, if we're talking about now, then I would say development generally um, economic development, talent development,
1: development. And the last one is, is more of a fun one, puts you in, a, in an awkward spot. The University of Chicago Economics Department or Harvard University's Economics Department? I know you. I know you spent time at both. It's
2: the easiest one you've you've asked so far. University of Chicago all day long. Uh, they 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 treat that is the first place that married academics and full contact sport for me, right? So like I absolutely love it. I just tell you one quick story. Sherwin Rosen famous labor economist, uh, I took his last labor class before he died. He used to smoke cigarettes and chain smoke them, was, blah, 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 that kind of guy. And, 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 you know, blow out the window. And I was a third year graduate student and they asked me to present in the big seminar. It's a big deal where all the Nobel Prize guys are there. And he says, I want to tell you, we ain't no liberals. We ain't hitting you with kid gloves. <laughs> <So> I said, <laughs> I said, I said, bring it, old man. Right? Like, I mean, it was it was we had this relationship. Man, where I remember the first time we discussed discrimination. I know we're over, but one, one last thing. First time we discussed discrimination. You got to understand, I had no idea of how economists thought about discrimination. So he we went in and we talked about Becker's theory of discrimination. Okay, so Becker's theory is the reason I don't um, hire you is because I have a utility cost of interacting. With you. It makes me feel worse, and so that's why I don't. Care. And so. That sounded like discrimination to me. I said, "That's discrimination." He says, "Nah, because what happens is that people who don't have that preference, uh, the black labor uh, force goes there, and so you have segregation, but you don't have discrimination." Mm. I said, that makes no sense to me. The discrimination is what causes segregation. And he sat there with this delight on his face and said, "No." <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was getting furious. Right? And we went back and forth and back and forth. I mean, it was like the class wasn't there. And of course, I'm too dumb to realize these undergraduates are like, are You crazy? This is Sheryl Rosa. But we're going at it, right? I mean, it is an hour of discussion, just he and I. And I leave thinking, This white man's racist. I'm out. I call my grandmother on the way back to the dance and tell her my grandma's name was Ferris. We call her sister. Yeah, boy. You ain't gonna believe these white balls. Okay, it's like it was bad. but You know they all crazy. And next next class period, I decided to skip. I ain't going to this dude's class. Racist. So I'm walking across campus getting some lunch, and here he comes. And so he comes up to me and says, "You weren't in class today." I said, "Oh man, this morning I had a stomach ache. Oh my god." Yeah, I I it.
0: Okay.
2: He said, "Well, I just want to let you know I missed you." And I was like, this sick freak like that shit? Bro? <laughs> 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 that was fun to you? <laughs> and I went back to class the next day and we had a semester of throwdown and I had never learned so much, man. Like it was the only true, honest, no holds barred discussion I've had on race. Center. And it was unbelievable. You can't, what he did in that classroom to teach me you can't do it
1: oh.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: oh,
2: Trust me, I know. You can't do it anymore.
0: Because mm.
2: I use that method to teach. <laughs> no more. Like, you can't do it anymore. It was real. It was in your face. It was Socratic. It was pushing the boundaries. It was telling me things he didn't necessarily believe himself to illustrate points of where the limits of economic reasoning were. It was brilliant. And I'm so grateful to him. But you can't do that anymore. So, University of Chicago
0: all day long, and thanks to Sherwin Rosen. Okay, wow, 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 wow. All right, well Roland, we are down to our last question. And <laughs> no, seriously, and, and this, you know, listening to this entire conversation, maybe it is, continues to be the most important question because there is a 16 year old out there in the world. There is, there is a Daryl who lives in Forgotten USA, this imaginary urban city. Daryl is hearing the false narratives. Daryl is hearing data, which is not the data that you're talking about, which is the truth. He's hearing a lot of things that are informing his view of the world. So if you had Daryl in front of you and you were said, all right, man, look, I want you to be successful. I've committed my life to your success. This is what my advice is to you. What would you tell him?
2: easy uh effort matters skills matter the the and and then i would expect push <laughs> what about this what about that and i don't I, I wouldn't i wouldn't even coin it as false narrative versus this that's already giving it everything too much creepy it is about what the returns are to effort and skills and there are millions of data points to say they are very positive, independent of what race or group you are. Yes, Daryl, there's discriminations. Yes, someone's going to call you the n Yes, someone's going to put their hands in. You. I'm not saying there's not tax. <laughs> <laughs> but what I'm saying is that effort and skills are rewarded in the marketplace. Um, and that's your best shot. Because what's the other alternative? Right.
0: What's the other alternative? Roland Fryer. Roland Fryer. This was a tour de force, my friend.
2: Hey, man, it was fun. Sorry, sorry for the rambling, but I, I get
0: all. Uh, no, no, no. This is just—it's great. It's great. I mean, this is exactly why we Nike and I have joined forces to do this podcast. Um, well, for our, all of our viewers, thank you for listening and watching another episode of the Invisible Men. If you wanna see any other episodes, you can go to www.invisible.men. We will have information about reconstruction on our website. Uh, we'll have other information of the research that Roland Fryer has done on education, on policing, his body of work. And uh, Roland, just thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is, a, this is a blast. Let's do it again. Thank you for watching another episode of The Invisible Men. You can find other episodes at the AEI podcast channel on YouTube or the website invisible.men or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.